Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, and we'll be reading Genesis 17 through chapter 18, verse 15 together. And then, God willing, we will cover that portion of Scripture. Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you were a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac." whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought 
with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house. Born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord... If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And thus ends our reading. A large portion of narrative text, a large portion of God's history of revealing himself to Abram and Sarai, whom he made to be Abraham and Sarah. We've covered portions of this already, and so we'll focus in on fresh ground this Lord's Day. The title of today's sermon is not holy laughter. (laughs) Although I was tempted. The title of today's sermon is Unending Laughter. Unending Laughter. Interestingly, in my mind, in my early Christian life, I only thought of Sarah laughing. And somehow I missed that Abraham was laughing as well. In fact, he laughed first, ladies, right? Yeah, remember well, where in the garden, Adam pointed to Eve and said, the, the woman you gave me, 
right? Well, in this case, uh, man certainly has no leg to stand on. Not that Adam had a leg to stand on in the garden, but Abram laughed first, and then Sarah behind him. And so, unending laughter is the title of our message, and you'll see why as things unfold. But let's consider laughter before we dig into this text. Let's consider laughter from three different texts outside of Genesis. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we have unholy laughter. And this is just to get us warmed up with laughter, not to get us laughing. So James 4, verses 7 through 10, unholy laughter. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, I've known some people that have made this their life verse. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the portion I want to focus on here. But in that context, what you understand is that the Lord is addressing unbelievers who are caught up in an unbelieving lifestyle of delighting in every sinful thing that God hates and that God has forbidden. Things that... Blaspheme God and destroy one's life, one's heart, one's mind, and one's soul. Taking great mirth, great joy, great peace, and all these things that ultimately are of the devil and the world system that serves him. And I can recall, and maybe you can too, pre-Christ, that was me. I delighted in all that God hated. And that which I laughed about most heartily was that which I should only mourn over heartily. And so that's what the Lord is here addressing. He's not forbidding joy or happiness or laughter, but He is forbidding joy and happiness and laughter in all things wicked, in all things evil, in all things sinful. And so unholy laughter, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Much of the laughter that's out there in the world is distinctly unholy. And we need to guard ourselves from that as Christians to not engage in unholy laughter with them. Not to laugh at that for which Jesus died. Think on that. He took the fullness of God's wrath for those very sins that we might be tempted to laugh at. And others will bear God's wrath forever and ever and ever for those things that they laughed at, those vile things, hateful things, blasphemous things. Blasphemy is particularly funny these days. It's hilarious to blaspheme. It's hilarious for men to act like women and women to act like men. It's just hilarious. It never was hilarious. Never. Don't laugh at it. Don't participate in it. This laughter needs to be turned to mourning, for it is unholy laughter. 
It is an unholy joy that needs to be turned to gloom. And thus we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up, says verse 10. So you're not to remain mournful, not to remain perpetually sorrowful, but to find your joy and your laughter in the Lord. He will lift you up with righteous, pure, good, and holy joy and laughter. So unholy laughter. Secondly, unhappy laughter. You may be familiar with this. Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. And I have seen this. I've never experienced it, praise God. But I have seen it on display where someone shifts from laughter to tears midstream. Because the reality is there's so much pain in their life. There's so much sorrow due to their sin and the sins of others or just the effect of sin on mankind, death, that their mirth turns to sorrow midway through the expression of that emotion. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. And so we want a laughter, we want a joy that is, that is deeper than the pains of this world that is more powerful than the sins of this world in our own sin. We, we don't want unhappy laughter. Comedians, generally speaking, are miserable men. Have you noted that? Have you lived long enough to figure that out? Not that I want you to do a real study on comedians because most of them are exceedingly foul and blasphemous. But if you, if you take a look at their lives, they are not happy men or women. Usually there's drug and alcohol abuse, and often their lives do not end well at all. They have broken relationships, and, and uh, they die in their sins. Very tragic. When you can find a comedian who is righteous, making holy humor, that is unique, whether he's a professional or just a good friend. <laughs> that is unique. Uh, at men's retreat, I missed the joke, so I don't know. I'm not judging. I don't know. But uh, I, I was there at the beginning when the joke started, like the first few words. I went downstairs. I came back up. It was like 10 minutes later. I don't know. It was some time later. And the joke was just ending. Uh, this thing took a while to load. Um, but when it went off, I mean, it went off like a laughter bomb. And it was, it was a blessing to me to hear everyone laughing so heartily. And one day I'll have to hear that joke. Um, but we don't want to have unholy laughter, nor do we want to have unhappy laughter, but true, joyous laughter that's from the Lord, a gift from the Lord in righteousness, in that joy that God gives, that peace that God gives. Psalm 126 verses 2 and 3 speaks of unending laughter, unending laughter. Psalm 126, 2 and 3, it says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. They were so glad of the great things the Lord had done. It made them laugh. It made them so joyous that their mouth was filled with laughter. At what God had done on their behalf. 
And I've experienced a bit of that, not enough of it, but a bit of that, where I'm so astounded at what an idiot, what a fool I am, and that God would have mercy on me. It's laughable. <laughs> it's laughable how kind he is to sinners like you and I. It's laughable that he would look on the world's adoption agency, right, this globe, this adoption agency full of wretched, God-hating children and adopt you and I out of that mess and make us his own and make us to love him, changing our hearts. Knowing what once came out of my mouth, it's laughable that these things would now come out of my mouth. And I've heard some of my old friends from pre-Christ, I've heard them laugh at the idea that Chuck O'Neill is a Christian and a preacher. That's laughable. I had a friend once that I shared the gospel with. He told me, he said, you know, I heard, I, I laughed, and he's laughing at me as he's telling me this. And then he curses and whatever, he just couldn't believe it. And I said, oh, but it's true. <laughs> and I went on to share the gospel with him, and he made a profession. I don't know how it finished. Ultimately, I've lost touch over the years, but he made a profession, and it seemed to be good for a few years, and he was laughing no more. So unending laughter, that's what we want, unending laughter. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue was singing, and they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now this is Israel, and think of Israel, Israel's lot has not always been good. Things are not always bright and cheery for Israel. And it's all due to their sin. They keep rebelling against God. God keeps chastening them. Then they rebel. Then God chastens them. They get right. They rebel. God chastens them. On and on it goes. That's the history of Israel. And in many ways, that's the history of you and I. And yet, the eternal plan of God for His people is so beautiful, so good, so gracious, so kind, it filled their mouths with laughter. And it should fill ours with unending laughter as well. And we come to our text, Genesis 17, again the reiteration of God's covenant with Abram, made Abraham involving a nation, a blessing, a seed, and land. And remember the covenant is eternal, it's everlasting, it's forever, and the land possession is everlasting as well. And it says everlasting covenant in verse 7. It says everlasting possession regarding the land that he gave to Israel in verse 8. Thus, I do not believe the Lord has set Israel aside. I don't believe the church is replaced in any sense. Israel, I won't call Israel the church, and I don't believe anyone should, nor will I call the church Israel. The Lord has a distinct plan for his nation, Israel and a distinct plan for his church. Do the two overlap? Yes. But does the one become the other? No. And and is the covenant that God made that involves the actual land and actual Jews that are the actual blood descendants of Abraham, is that covenant null and void? It is not. It stands. We've covered that in depth and at length in times past. The sign of the covenant, circumcision, we covered last time. We'll not go through that uncomfortable 
issue again. Verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, which means my princess, personal, no doubt her parents named her that, my princess. But Sarah shall be her name, which simply means princess. She is the princess. She's the princess of Israel. She's the princess of God's people. She is the queen mother, if you will, of all the descendants of Abraham. And I will say spiritually, she's the queen mother or the princess of all of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. If we call Abraham father, Abraham spiritually, because he's our father who was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of works, then we can rightly, with God, say that she is the princess of faith. Could have titled the sermon that. But what a, what a beautiful thing, right? There are those that, that want to accuse God in the Bible and Christianity of misogyny. Now, what you find in the Bible, rightly understood, rightly divided, is an elevation of women, a, a blessing of women, a protection of women. And what you find in cultures that are dominated by the Bible, again, rightly divided, is that women are blessed, women are protected. It's the best place for a woman to live, a place that is ruled by the Word of God, a culture that is built upon a biblical worldview. So don't fall for the lies of our feminist culture, a feminist culture that has resulted in making women the perpetual sex objects of men, perpetually getting pregnant and murdering their own children and then suffering in their psyches and in their bodies and in their souls the after effects of that nightmare. How's that a brilliant plan for women? That's this, the devil's brilliant plan for women, not, not God's. That's not brilliant at all. And so, Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be born from her. And that all sounds awesome. Except Abraham's standing there at 99 years old, thinking about his 90-year-old wife. And it seems a bit far-fetched. It seems a bit out of reach. Kind of like it seemed out of reach to the disciples when they saw Jesus die. So clearly, so powerfully, so viscerally, so violently upon that cross. And yes, he said he would rise again. Yes, he said he must, like Jonah in the belly of the whale, be in the belly of the earth for three days and come forth. But they could not believe it. They were disillusioned. It was too much. It was too far. Yes, they saw him raise Lazarus after four days. But their faith could not extend beyond that cross and that death. For three days. So much so that when a woman, God bless her, who had seen the resurrected Lord came to them, they said, no, 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 no. It's a wives' tale, right? It's not true. Oh, that we would have faith, that we would believe God. And from beginning to end, The gospel, and this is the beginning of the gospel. I mean, the beginning of the beginning 
is back in Genesis in the first few chapters, chapter 3 to be specific. But this is the beginning of the gospel as Abraham and Sarah would have descendants that would lead to the seed that God had promised back in Genesis 3, who is Jesus Christ. So then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham didn't just laugh. He fell on his face and laughed. This was so unbelievable. This was so fantastic. This was so impossible to his mind that it wasn't worth just a belly laugh. It was worth a belly flop laugh. It was incredulous beyond reason. Much like the good news of the gospel. It is beyond reason that God would save you. Now, in our humanistic world, where every child is told how incredibly wonderful they are and virtually worshipped from birth, we might have a little more time getting to this truth, but in the long history of mankind, and still at times, we have the right disposition of how could God save a wretch like me? Now, in much of the evangelifish Christian world today, amazing grace has become offensive. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that other older hymn of the faith, not as old as amazing grace, or as well known, that speaks of us as worms, a worm as I. Well, that song has been changed, that old hymn, or just done away with entirely in many circles, because we're not going to liken ourselves to worms. That's too insulting. And of course, I agree, it is too insulting. It's way too insulting to the worm, because the worm has never sinned against its creator. And so if we have the right mindset, we're joining some of those before us that we find in Scripture saying, woe is me, I'm a sinner. And we would rejoice in wonder that God could save such a wretch as I. It's astonishing, this gospel. It's seemingly impossible that these sins could be atoned for. That I, a wretched, filthy, vile servant of the devil, pre-salvation could become a child of God with an inheritance befitting a child of God and dwell under His love and kindness and mercy forever and ever and ever? See, it's, it's these impossibilities, Abraham and Sarah having a child, that are all 
types or pictures of the impossibility, the miracle, the grandeur of the gospel. That wretched sinners can be made righteous saints, washed with the blood of the Lamb. Verse 17, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Surely there's another way. Surely there's another way, because this is impossible. This cannot be. This will not work. The covenant can't pass through Sarah's womb. That's done. That's over. It must be Ishmael. And he'd put his hopes in Ishmael, the son of a bondwoman. A bondwoman. It's all a picture. Isaac would be the son of grace. Amazing grace, mercy, miracle, supernatural overcoming of the normal circumstances of this world. Ishmael is a natural born child of a bond woman, born in, at least in picture, slavery, if not somewhat reality. And so Abram laughs, and he laughs heartily. It's not just a belly laugh. He's on his face laughing. And he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Well, not often, but it does happen. And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Well, I've never heard of that. Maybe you have. I certainly have not heard of that. And we must Take into account, this was closer to the fall by far than we are, meaning the effects of sin had not shortened life as short as it is today. And so 190, we're still, you know, pretty robust at 190, um, where today at 190, you, you definitely are holding on to that walker as a rule, if not... Uh, Uh, in a box in the ground. And so it's a little different. And I would say it's radically different, actually. And I just want you to get your minds around it. In that Sarah, in a few chapters, is given up as Abraham's sister once again. And it's because she is so beautiful. And so don't picture a really old woman with a cane saying, uh, this can't happen, and, and laughing. I expect she still seemed like what we would see as a really young woman, but still at 90, she was not fertile anymore. At 90, that time had well passed. And you, you'd be amazed at the commentators and how all over the map they are on this. You'd also be amazed if, if you look up, you know, uh, picture art or whatever online, you know, Google Sarah picture art, uh, Sarah laugh, picture art, that kind of thing. Uh, Sarah and Abraham picture art. She, she looks like the, the, the witch who gives the bad apple to Snow White. That's not it. That, that's not what he did. He didn't look over there and go, no, that's not happening. That's not what is going on here. 100 years old, yes. 90 years old, yes. 
in the same shape as a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old of our day? No. Uh, childbearing? No, not that either. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And so Ishmael, he's the hope. He's the hope. And clearly he had set his hopes. He had set his heart on Ishmael. He loves the boy. He has received him as a gift from God. But remember, this wasn't God's plan. Whose plan was this? It was Sarah's plan, ultimately. Of course, we men always get the blame because it's rightly put upon us. Because whether Sarah suggested or not, Abraham is accountable for saying, yep, let's, let's go that way, sure enough. Um, and notice that even though it was Sarah's plan, when uh, Hagar uh, conceived, uh, Sarah saw Abram as responsible, and she was mad when Hagar ill-treated her. And so don't, don't miss that, men. You are responsible. Uh, whether you're leading or not, you're leading and you're accountable for that leadership. Verse 19, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. How's that for a clear answer? I know we all wish our prayers could be answered that clearly. <laughs> That's awesome. Just a clear no, period. No, period. And this is what we're going to do. I love that clear speech from the Lord. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So this covenant I just swore to again. I just re-ratified in chapter 17 in the opening verses. Here in the later verses, I'm saying this covenant will pass through your son not through the son of the bondwoman. Verse 20, And for Ishmael, as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And so he reiterates repeatedly that Sarah, 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 your wife shall bear you a son next year, and his name shall be Isaac. Think again, beyond just generically, think specifically of Sarah at 90 years. At 90 years old, she has not had a child. So it's not just that she's 90 years old. She has lived 90 years. She's been married to Abraham for better or worse, to death do us part, for a long time. And no child, no child, no child. And the Lord says, Sarah. And so this is just too much to hope for. It, it's too big, it's too grand, it's too glorious. Ishmael? No, Sarah, and she will bear you a son, and his name shall be Isaac. My covenant I will establish with Isaac. Isaac will be the child of covenant. Isaac will be a child of grace. Isaac will be a child that is miraculously conceived in the womb against all normal circumstances. Look to Galatians. Keep your hand here in Genesis, but look to Galatians chapter 4. I want to get the New Testament's commentary on this. Galatians 4 verse 21 it says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? 
For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by bondwoman, the other by free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, covenant, miracle. Verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, that's the law. For this Hagar is of Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are spiritual descendants of the free woman, not the bondwoman. And the descendant of the bondwoman historically was the enemy of the descendant of Sarah, the descendant of promise, the descendant of faith. And presently that is still true. Those that love systems of works, righteousness, law, bondage, they tend to be at war with the church of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine, the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ and his finished work alone. And we see that, of course, preeminently in the Reformation, in the Church of Rome and its persecution, horrific, torturous persecution, vicious persecution of Christ's church. And we also see it, I would say, in that ardent system of works known as Islam. Islam. And it is at war with the world, but it's at war in particular with Christianity and with those who lift up the true Christ, and they see that as blasphemy. And so we find that the source of unending laughter is through the child of promise. The source of salvation is through the child of promise, the The covenant is carried to the child of promise, not the child of the flesh, not the child of bondage, not the child that was produced through earthly means, through earthly maneuvers, through earthly machinations. You know, oh, we got to have a child. We got to make this work. How are we going to do this? Um, We got to help God out. Here, take the handmaid. Bad idea. Bad idea. Bad idea historically, bad idea presently is that it does not produce salvation. Continuing in our text, verse 23, So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. Some of you thought I erred earlier when I said he was 99 and then it said he was 100. The 100 is rounding up. I know, some of you probably wrote it down. I'm going to tell the pastor he made a mistake. 
He's 99, give or take 100. He'll be 100 when the child is born, right? So he's looking ahead. Really, a child nine months from now is going to be born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife? Really? Really, yes, truly. He was circumcised at 99, and Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in his house or brought... Uh, excuse me, born in his house or bought with money from a foreigner who was circumcised with him. I'm just going to touch on it once again. Uh, Wokeness has no place in bringing judgment upon the Word of God. Uh, Don't do it. Don't fall for it. Uh, Throughout the history of mankind, there has been slavery. Do we delight in slavery? We don't. Uh, Does the Word of God bring the end to slavery when it's consistently applied in cultures, it does. And I'm very excited about that. Praise God for that. Um, But the Lord doesn't condemn slavery outright everywhere in every culture. In fact, He gives laws to govern it, uh, to make it more humane. And so uh, be careful at what sensitivities, what emotions, what doctrines you allow to get a hold of your heart. Because if you're not careful, you'll turn around and assault Scripture and the God of Scripture. I like being free, but many of my Irish forefathers were not, right? And if they came to Christ in that circumstance of not being free, should they then raise up a rebellion in Jesus' name? Is that the mission of their life, or is their mission of their life to proclaim Christ in their context to master and fellow indentured servant or slave? The answer is obvious. So we'll just leave that alone for now. I've preached on it in the past. We'll touch on it again. But beware of where you are getting your sensitivities, of where you're getting your passions and your interest. Pastors showing up at BLM rallies and protests is an all-too-frequent occurrence. They should show up to preach the gospel, but not show up to participate. And by the way, it's not really about slavery. It's really about communism. It's really about enslaving. <laughs> Red, yellow, black, and white. That's really the mission of BLM. Slavery and racism is just the tool to the end, just the means to the end. He circumcised himself, his son, all the men of the household, slave or free, all of them circumcised immediately. Immediately. And all I would say in that is uh, Abraham was saved by grace alone through faith alone. And a good evidence of being saved by grace alone through faith alone is obedience. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 speaks to that obedience. Uh, Back in Genesis 15, verse 6, it said that Abraham's believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So he was saved long before this circumcision occurred. Circumcision does not produce salvation. However, if you're saved and you're an Old Testament Jew, which you can't be today, you would have to be living in the Old Testament era. But if you're saved as an Old Testament Jew, you are going to obey God in circumcision as a sign of faith and a sign that you're part of the covenant of God. If today you're saved, you're going to obey God in baptism and identify with the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in baptism and proclaim your commitment to Christ as Lord and that you have died with Him and resurrected with Him to newness of 
life. The baptismal waters don't save today. Circumcision didn't save historically. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That said, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so if we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, you have been saved by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. Then verse 10 is also true, that there are righteous works, which he has prepared beforehand, that we should walk therein, because we are his workmanship. And so we see that play out in Abraham's life, we, and we should see that play out in our lives. As spiritual children of Abraham, we want to obey Jesus, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We, we typically focus on 18. Go therefore and make disciples. Or all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Baptize them. That's our focus. But verse 20, and teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. If we are rightly being baptized because Jesus has saved us, because Jesus is our Lord, then we are going to come for the baptismal waters and say, all right, what do I do now, Lord? Here am I, send me. And it flips right back around to where it started, that great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Well, how is it you got saved? Because the church was going, therefore, in one way or another, in making disciples. And thus, now you're a disciple, and so you obey Christ in that, and certainly much more. But that's the basic obedience unto the Lord, is to make much of Jesus, to make His name known, His gospel known, that He might receive His full glory and the redemption of sinners. And so Abraham typifies this. He puts this on display, the salvation that works, right? The faith that works, not uh, works that save or or, uh, faith plus works that save. This is evidence of genuine faith and salvation, not the means of salvation historically and presently today. All of God's people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Again, Genesis 15, 6, He believed God, and God, He accounted it unto Him as righteousness. All right, back to our text. Chapter 18, little change of scene. Shortly thereafter, uh, shortly after this interaction between God and Abram, regarding Sarah bearing him a son named Isaac and God establishing his covenant with Isaac and not Ishmael. Shortly after this circumcision, then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes, looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Now notice it said, then the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, appeared to him. Then it said three men. So one of the three men is Yahweh. And I think that, again, the best understanding of this is is a Christophany, a a, uh, appearance of Christ, pre-incarnate, before he took upon the bodily form that now still appears to be pierced and he will possess forever as the Lamb of God. But here the Lord, Yahweh, appears, and he's one of the three. The other two are, no doubt, angels, messengers. 
And he is there with them, and Abram sees them, and he understands who they are to some extent. He ran from the tent door to meet them. That's a good response. He ran. You know, I, I love it when you pull up to a place and they've trained their employees like to run out. It's so rare, right, to like cheerfully and happily, you know, engage you. And you used to kind of get that at Les Schwab or in America's Tire or whatever. You still do to some extent, but it used to be better even. And and that, that kind of service is unusual, and it's good business practice, but this is good spiritual practice, right? There's God. Well, let me, let me you know, finish up what I'm doing here. They like to boast about their personal Christophanies, um, their personal visits from Jesus, and they always keep doing what they're doing, it seems. Whether they're driving or sleeping or showering or shaving, they always keep doing what they're doing. But you never find that in Scripture. You find them dropping everything or getting up off their rear end where he's sitting in the heat of the day in the tent and running over there. Uh, You find them falling on their face, crying out, I'm undone. I'm going to die because they're in the presence of the holy God. You don't find them continuing to do what they do normally, going about their day normally and just kind of chit-chatting it up with God personally, face to face. You certainly don't find them, as Jesse Duplantis said, as he boasted, that God kept waking him up one night, and he finally yelled out, what? In exasperation, that God kept waking him up, and God said to him, I'm lonely. Jesse will be lonely if he does not repent. He will be in a place with his weeping and gnashing of teeth and darkness forever. That is so blasphemous. So blasphemous. And by the way, those practicing holy laughter, it's not holy at all. There's so much unholiness in all that. It's an absolute mess. It's a spiritual drunkenness. Not holy at all. All right, back to our text here. So he gets up. And he responds appropriately. He runs. He runs to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. It's great. So he runs, he bows. And he said, my Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by it as much as you have come to your servant. So he wants to serve them. He wants to bless them. He wants to interact with them in a beautiful way. And they respond, do as you have said. Verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Sarah said, Tell Hagar. No, sorry. Um, (laughs) Verse 7, and Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, and gave it to a young man. He hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So he served them. He had his servants serve them. He called upon his wife to serve them. And he's standing by like a servant, still serving them. This is what he's doing. He's standing by. Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here 
in the tent. And you can find interesting commentary on that, why Sarah wasn't in there and whatnot. I think more than anything, it's just cultural where there, there's a uh, shamefacedness, as the New Testament talks about. There's a modesty. You, you've got men. You are honoring them. They, you, you, they are spiritual men, whatever, but men are conducting men's business, and, and you're not entering the, the ladies into that. And obviously, these aren't just men, but they're in the appearance of men. Um, and that just seems to be the cultural norm. And in some ways, that's healthier than our culture. We're, we're putting our ladies out there in all sorts of unhealthy ways, unsafe ways, so, uh, men, answer the door. Men, bump in the night, you go. Not the wife. Not the wife. Honey, can you check that out? I think I heard something. What? What? That'll be a church discipline issue. Bring it to me. We'll deal with it. My goodness. We are men. Uh, we protect our ladies. Provide and protect. These are basic manly responsibilities that God has ordained. And go back to the garden. How do we end up in this mess called sin? Adam didn't protect. Let's not keep perpetuating that, men. We need to protect our daughters, protect our wives. There are evil men out there. Evil men. You see a man siding up to your wife, and over the years it's happened a few times. You know, you ought to be concerned about that. Not because you distrust your wife, but because there are evil men with evil intentions. I've had to rescue my wife on at least one occasion from a man being very threatening. She feared to leave the store. And that's just Ross feared to leave the store. And sure enough, he was up to evil. When, when he figured out that Josh and I had come and that we were with her, he took off. And his car was not parked right there outside like you were a shopper. And he didn't buy anything. He took off way across the parking lot, got in his car and woof, bamoosed. And I did follow him for a while. There are evil men out there. Protect your ladies. She is not in there. They ask, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, why does the Lord come and do this again? It seems that Abraham was doubting. That's why. (laughs) It seems that the last time the Lord told him this, he had fallen on his face laughing. And so the Lord is back reiterating his promise, reiterating the fact this is going to happen. Abraham, get ready. This is going to happen. And... At the end of verse 10, it says, Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And so God comes with this message, in part, I think, because Abraham had laughed and fallen on his face laughing, and in part because Sarah had not heard it from God, and I think God wanted Sarah to hear it directly from him. And she did hear it, and she laughed. (laughs) She laughed in the very same way that Abraham laughed. This was too impossible. This was too much. After 90, 90 years of barrenness, in such an old age, This cannot be. 
This cannot be. And so she laughs, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Hmm. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And then Sarah denies it. I didn't laugh. She was afraid. Bad move. Bad move. Don't deny it. Right? If you blow it, own up to it. Don't deny it. God's omniscient. What good is denying it going to do? Right? You might get away with it with a fellow human being, but you're not going to get away with it with God. Hey, I heard you laugh. Oh, I didn't laugh. (laughs) Um, She laughed. She was afraid. She denied it. She's a sinner. She's a sinner. John MacArthur had something to say about our elder sister, Sarah. This is from his book, 12 Extraordinary Women of the Bible. Quote, She could throw fits and tantrums. She knew how to be manipulative. She was even known to get mean. She could be impatient, temperamental, conniving, cantankerous, cruel, flighty, pouty, jealous, erratic, unreasonable, a whiner, a complainer. And you think, ouch. (laughs) So I asked the question there. So how does a woman like Sarah, so fallen and so far from God's original glorious and sinless design in Eve, get to heaven? How does a woman who lies to God get to heaven? Does she not know that no liar will inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Does she not know you shall not lie? Does she not know the devil is the father of lies? How is Sarah going to get to heaven? Well, the same way her husband is and did. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh, the Son, the Seed. Ultimately, the seed of Eve before her and the seed of her own womb after her. Jesus would come from her womb, many descendants later. And so I, I, I read that description, and Pastor MacArthur's not being mean there. He's, he's being rather accurate if you look closely at the text of her life. I read that because Abram gets a hard rap many times, as he should, but we don't often hear people speaking plainly about Sarah. And it should encourage you. Because every one of us, men and women, are sinners. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Made saints, not on our merit, not through our strength, but through the power of God, through the blood of the Lamb, through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Now, she laughed. Abraham laughed. They're doubting. How does the story end? How do we get to unending laughter? Well, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 21. Chapter 21. And in Genesis 21, verse 6, it says, And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. After God visited Sarah, a year later, Isaac was then born. What I haven't told you, what some of you may already know, is that the name Isaac means to laugh. And so when God named Isaac, he named this this child, this son of promise, laughter. And so when Sarah has this child of promise, Sarah says, 
in Genesis 21, 6, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And saints, we will be laughing forever with our Lord. We'll be laughing at the glory and wonder of His abundant grace and astonishment, not in doubt and unbelief, but in the the glorious reality, the, the certain unfolding of all that He has promised. And many times in your life, just like in Abraham and Sarah's life, the the promises are going to seem too high, too far away, too difficult, too thin. But the promises are eternal. They're everlasting. They're certain. The Lord has sworn it so. And He will bring it to pass most certainly so that we will laugh forever and ever and ever with Sarah, our mother of faith, and with Abraham, our father of faith. Neither perfect, both made perfect by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yahweh the Son. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious text. We thank you, Lord, for the truths Therein, the chief truth being the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace upon our elder brother and sister and the hope that that gives us for our own souls and the souls of others. We ask, Father, that you sustain us, that you encourage us, that you grant us hope and joy and peace and laughter day by day until we see you face to face. We pray it in the mighty name, the matchless name, of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.